I do pray that we would receive this for what it is, not the word of humanity, not coming or arising from humans, but the very word of God. And that in, in the preaching of the word, it might come with power, conviction, and the Holy Spirit. Bring new life to us all. For some of us, that new life is going to be a renewed experience maybe for the first time in a long time. For others of us, it may be a new experience for the first time ever. But we pray that you would bring life from the dead because that's the kind of God you have proven yourself to be in Christ and by the Spirit. Amen. Well, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And what difference does it make? I mean, really, what difference does it make? That a man 2,000 years ago was raised from the dead. Pincus Lapid was a Jewish philosopher, theologian, historian. He wrote a book on the resurrection of Jesus Christ entitled, The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. Pincus Lapid is a very interesting man because uh, he decided after looking at all the evidence that it was more plausible, it was more miraculous for the disciples after being disillusioned by having a would-be Messiah crucified to turn around and then have faith and joy and celebrate that the next, in two days later or something like that. He, he said that it would be, uh, that would be more miraculous for that to come out of thin air than for the resurrection of Jesus. He concluded that the resurrection of Jesus was a historical reality. It was a miracle of history, and yet he did not become a Christian. Here's someone who looks at the historical evidence, and he says, yes, you cannot make sense. You cannot get from Judaism of the first century to Christianity of the second century, the rise of the early church. You cannot make that bridge without the Jesus of the Gospels and especially the Jesus who rose from the dead. You can't do it. So it must have happened. And yet he did not become a Christian. Which raises the question, if you accept the historical reality of Jesus raising from the dead, what difference should it make in your life? I don't think there's a better passage to explain that than this passage that was just read in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3 through 9. And in this passage, we find at least three things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers us. Three ways in which it should make a difference. All the difference in the world. The first way that it makes a difference is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers us new life. If you look in verse 3, Peter says that God has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That, that through Jesus' resurrection and his passing from death to life, something happens. We are given a new birth. Now, I realize that the statement born again is ubiquitous in our culture. It's also, um, for various reasons, if you listen to the pollsters, 
uh, very derided in our culture. It has come to be associated with those who are a bit naive, undereducated maybe, socially and politically conservative. It's come to be associated with enthusiasts who are obsessed over the end of times. And for that reason, it's derided. And even many Christians want to distance themselves from this kind of phrase. But the concept of the new birth, being born again, it is actually essential to Christianity. No matter what modern connotations it might carry, the connotations that it had in its original setting are actually something that I would argue we all want. Because it's about a new life. It's about a changed life. I mean, think of it with me for a second. Think about the various influences that your birth has over your life. First, you have life because of your birth. If you weren't born, you wouldn't have life. So that's one. Um, I know, you're like, this guy is brilliant. I am coming back. I am coming back. Wow. Yes. So you have life. The second thing, I mean, uh, family system theorists and such talk about how influential the parents we have and our families are over us. We were all born into a certain family, and um, our families, for most of us, they determine our uh, socioeconomic background, our racial identity. They uh, determine a lot of the hobbies that we do, right? Most of us like certain hobbies because our parents were open to those hobbies. Um, you know, the Mannings didn't become football gurus just because, right? Uh, and, and not only that, it's also mannerisms. Have you ever watched a family and seen a child who walks like one of their parents? I always like to see that. It's so interesting. I remember one time um, the Ranheims, Paul Ranheim used to uh, be a, a pastor here until we told him to leave. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, we were very sad when he left, but um, the Lord took him to Nashville, and he's worshiping there and leading God's people, and we we're thankful for uh, him and his ministry. I just heard from this week. But Paul, uh, it, I knew his brother in seminary, and then I met Paul, and Paul and his brother have very unique walks, very different walks, right? And I was with his family during his ordination, and we were all walking down the, the beachfront, and I noticed that Paul walks like his dad, and John, his brother, walks just like his mom. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, the family that you were born in has tremendous influence over you, and that's not even to take into account the biological factors. And you were not just born into a certain family. You were born into a certain time and a certain place with certain intellectual climate, with certain plausibility structures. I mean, think about how different your life would be if you were born not now but in... Minnesota in early 1900. Or, or think about how different your life would be if you were born in China in the 5th century. You would be totally different. Your view of the world would be totally different. See, where we are born, in the family in which we are born, our birth, it, it is incredibly influential over our lives. And so, while we like to think that we are free and that the world is open to us and that we can do anything that we want, the factor of the matter is, is by nature and by nurture, most of our lives 
And what is determined uh, for us and set out beforehand is, is determined already by our birth. So, your birth, it, it is um, it's determinative for the possibilities that are open to you. And then Peter, he says that you can have a new birth. And that's something that we all want. Because we all want change. And it means change. I was just reading an interview by John Mayer on his new album. John Mayer, the pop singer. Um, and he says this about himself. He says, I'm about myself. I'm self-centered. But I don't think everything I do is great. But I think about everything I do all the time. All I do is think about what I do. It's horrible. It's a horrible existence. And even the most self-confident of us, we want change. There are things about ourselves, proclivities, dispositions, habits, that we wish were different. We wish that if we talked too much, we talked less. We wish that if we were cowardly in a conversation, we would speak up more. We wish that we weren't so insecure, or we wish we were more aware of our surroundings and people around us and didn't hurt them so bad. We all want change. Alfred Tennyson said, An all for a man to arise in me that the man I am may cease to be. We want to be different. And we want to change things about our lives. I mean, we all have regrets, right? I have regrets. Today, I have have a five-year-old. I... Neve turned five today. You can't be, don't tell her, she thinks this is all for her, so don't tell her. You can't have a five-year-old and not have regrets. From the small things like why didn't we teach our child another language when they were younger and it's so easy to learn, to the big things like why wasn't I more present and more gracious? You can't, we all have regrets. Except you can't undo the past. But we want to undo the past. John Clare, the poet, said, if, I had a, if life had a second edition, how I would correct the proofs. And wouldn't you? If your life had a second edition, wouldn't you correct the proofs? But we can't, because we say the past is just the past. What we mean by that is you can't do anything about it. But here's the problem with that. The past actually affects the present. And so for most of us, we feel stuck in some way or another. Stuck in our careers, stuck in a bad marriage, stuck in our addiction, stuck in our loneliness. We feel stuck. Stuck in our fears and bad habits. we just want to change. We want a new life. Peter says that because of the resurrection, you can have a new life. 
that a new life is actually possible. The resurrection says you can change because to be a Christian is to enter into an entirely new mode of existence that was brought about, about the, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You, you see, if it is, if your life would be substantially different if you were born, if you were born in 5th century China, think about how much more different it would be if you were born in the new heavens and the new earth. Think about how much more different it would be if you were born into a world where sin and death no longer reigned. Think about how much different it would be if you were born into a family that had God as your father and Christ as your brother and all you knew was love. Well, that would be a new life. And that's the life that's offered to us. That's what the new birth is all about. I was... Um, Recently in a conversation with someone, and this person was asked, do you believe people can change? It's actually a question that comes up a lot in conversations I'm in. Had a conversation with a friend at a theological conference two years ago. I read that same conversation in um, Marilyn Robinson's home. Can people change? And, uh, and it was in a conversation that was recently had, and, and I heard someone ask this person, can people change? And the person looked at me and they said, yes, people can change. I know people can change because God changed me. And then he began to tell a story that I have permission to relay to you. The way he tells it, he was sitting at his kitchen sink and he was looking out over the backyard and there was a voice in his head that said, it's time to come out of the shadows. And he knew exactly what that meant. And so that night, he sat his wife down and told her about his pornography addiction, which was destroying himself and his marriage and his relationships. As you can imagine, that was very difficult for her to take. As you can imagine, their relationship wasn't the strongest at that point in time. She told him, get out. Get out of the house. I don't want to talk to you. I'm done. He didn't know what to do, so he started packing the car. He called his parents who lived in town. He was about to head over. I'm going to have to stay with you. I don't know for how long. As he was about to drive out the driveway, she came back out to the driveway and said, get in. Words of grace. I don't know what to say to you, but I believe that we can get through this. He then called a pastor who he sat down with, and the pastor said to him, I want you to know that you can get through this because you can change. Your pornography addiction does not have the last word in your life. Jesus' resurrection does. And so at that point, he went on a journey, and it was a journey. A journey of learning to appropriate the resurrection life that is offered in Jesus Christ. A journey that included things like prayer and fasting. A journey that included things like examining himself daily. A journey that included things like scripture memorization. A journey that included getting involved in a community who continually points you to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ.
And he says, I believe that people can change because God has changed me. He changed my destructive relationships with my body, and he changed my destructive relationship with my family. And he has given me new life. New life is possible. It's not easy. It's not automatic. I'm not saying that. It actually takes, it takes formation. It takes practice. It takes actually learning to appropriate and embody that life in a community that continues to proclaim and point you to the resurrection power of Jesus. It is not easy. It is not automatic. But it is possible. Because you have access to the new life. The new world. A world without sin and without death. And you have access to that now. By virtue of union with Christ. So let me ask you. Where in your life do you need to experience change? Where in your life have you given up on the prospects of change? Don't give up. Change is possible. The resurrection offers a new life. That's the first thing. The second thing that Peter tells us is that the resurrection offers us a new future. He says that we are born into something. Verse 3 goes, in to, goes on to say that we are born into a living hope. Hope. Hope is the understanding that my future will turn out for good. It's the belief, the conviction that my future will turn out for good. And we all need hope. We need hope to live. We can't live without hope. It's why so many people were captured and captivated by the message during the Obama campaign, because we need hope to live. We need hope. And it's why we, we live constantly looking to the future. Uh, during Advent, around Christmas time, I was looking forward to getting uh, through Christmas and a trip in January. After the trip in January, I was looking forward to getting done with um, and finishing and completing a paper and delivering it in Chicago. After that, I was looking forward to getting through Easter and some time next week to do some do-it-yourself projects and ride my motorcycle and things like that. Uh, after that, I'm looking forward to another trip in the summer to see the Pacific Northwest for the first time. We live oriented towards the future. We all do. We can't help it. We are a people driven by hope. And if you need hope to live, the reality is, is that our society has become increasingly hopeless and cynical. The promises of modernity have fallen way short. We were told that with education and technological innovation and globalization that things would all just work out. And what's happened? Well, technology has led to anxiety. Globalization has not stopped war. Education has not freed us. In fact, the more we know, the more anxious we become. We, we become hopeless and 
And, and it's not just that we're hopeless about the future, and we're not just disappointed by the past, but, but there's a deep, a deep cynicism that, that anything, any promises could work out. You say, well, no, no, people are optimistic. Yes, there is an optimism on the surface, especially in sunny California. But if you scratch beneath the surface, you will see people bleed anxiety and depression. I was uh, like most people, uh, or at least like 20 million other people, I've gotten caught up in the um, podcast S-Town. So I've been listening to the new podcast S-Town, which is uh, uh, about Bibb County, Alabama, and the goings-on down there. And it revolves around one man uh, in Bibb County, Alabama, John B. McLemore. And John B. McLemore is just one of these consummate pessimists. Uh, he can turn anything into uh, gloom and doom, right? And so he's talking with the narrator, Brian Reed, and the narrator mentions, he's like, the landscape down here in uh, Alabama, it's, it's beautiful. And then uh, John, John B. says, there you go. There's our legacy going down the road. Another lumber truck carting away that pretty landscape, one tree at a time. And then uh, Brian Reed will say, that's a beautiful butterfly. John B. will respond, yep, we don't have as many butterflies as we should have this year either. I love how um, at one point he's like, he's been saying that they desperately need rain and they're in the middle of a drought. And um, and he's like, that's a good thing, right? You're getting rain today. And he goes, well, too late for that. <laughs> I love how Brian Reed puts it. He says, no positive comment, no matter how innocuous, survives his virtuosic negativity. Uh, and, uh, and that's John B. And you say, well, this guy is just a pessimist. But it's not all unfounded. I mean, he reads the news a lot. He knows what's going on in the world. He's not turning a blind eye to it. He knows about the fallout from the tsunami in Sri Lanka in 2004. He knows about the terrible flood in Pakistan the year before last. He follows the, out, the fallout from the Ebola outbreak. He even knows what's going on with the nuclear disasters in Fukushima and Chernobyl. And he keeps up with the effects of climate change. And so you say, well, he's just overly pessimistic. But I guess my question is, why do you say that? I mean, what does your future look like? What can you be confident about your future, ultimately? Outside of the resurrection of Jesus, let me tell you what everybody in this room can be confident about about their future. Your future will involve suffering. Your future will involve loss. Your future will involve loss of relationships, loss of opportunity, loss of your health. Your future will involve pain. Your future will involve loss of financial resources and a diminishing mind and body that's what everybody here can look forward to with confidence. And there might be other things that happen along the way that are good. 
but you can't bank on those. The things I just said, you can bank on. Everyone in here. And, and, and what about the world at large? What can it bank on? The earth's resources are diminishing. It will decay. And what's left after that? And after you die, what's left after that? But isolation, loneliness, complete cutoff, despair. That's a pretty hopeless future. We all need hope to live and we don't want to think about it, but that, that, is, that is your future. That is your future outside of the resurrection of Christ. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it offers hope to a hopeless world. It offers hope to a hopeless world because it offers a new future, and that future is glorious. Verse 5 describes it as a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation in the New Testament has the broadest range of connotation. It means rescue from danger. It means healing from illness. It means deliverance from the threat of death. It means freedom from anxiety. It means harmony in relationships, perfect satisfaction, wholeness, delight. It is everything sad coming untrue and everything happy becoming more true. If you are a Christian, that is your future. If you trust in Christ, that is your future. It is a future that is glorious and it is a future that is guaranteed. Verse 4 calls it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The salvation that God offers you in Jesus Christ, it is untouched and untouchable by the vicissitudes of time and circumstance. It is kept in heaven for you. You know, there aren't a lot of guarantees in life. You put your money in the bank and the banks could falter. You put your money in a house in Santa Barbara and an earthquake or tsunami could hit. There aren't a lot of guarantees in life. There aren't a lot of guarantees, but the resurrection, it guarantees a future that is held by God and kept by God and untouchable. And it's not just that your future is untouchable. It's that you are kept by God and you are guarded by God as well. Look at verse 5. Peter says that by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Do you realize what this says? Listen to me. By the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, the same power that holds your inheritance untouchable in heaven, that same power is holding you and keeping you so that you won't falter. See, he, he, is, he is guaranteed your future, and that's what makes this different from optimism. See, I realize that there's a lot of optimism out there. There's a lot of optimism, a lot of wishful thinking. I was talking to someone um, recently. We were having lunch, and they looked at me, and they said, I believe that the, the universe is conspiring in our favor. And I just kind of sat there and thought, okay, why? No, really, why? I just do. Okay, 
Would you say that to someone who's in a concentration camp? Would you say that to someone born with AIDS in Africa? I mean, why do you think that? See, optimism says things are just going to work out for the best, but it doesn't really have any grounding for it. But the resurrection of Jesus, it says your future is guaranteed. It's guaranteed based on the promise of God who cannot lie and has shown himself to be faithful in the sending of the Messiah. And it's guaranteed by the person of Christ who has risen from the dead to overcome death and is currently reigning to make all things new. And because of that, you can have hope. Hope is different than optimism. J.I. Packer, he notes the difference well. He says, optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arising. But Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of this life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your best is yet to come? Because if you do, it actually changes the way that you view the present. It changes your outlook in the present. Verses 6 and 7, in verses 6 and 7, Peter says that when you you understand this inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, uh, it gives you a new outlook on trials and suffering, a totally different perspective on it. Suffering no longer has the last word. Jesus' resurrection does. You see, without Jesus' resurrection, your suffering is meaningless, pointless, vain. It just happens. It just is what it is. But, but with the resurrection of Jesus, we learn that, that suffering, and in comparison to the future world that is to come, it is only, verse 6, for a little while. For a little while. You see, the Christian can say in full assurance, because of the resurrection of the dead, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. And they can say it with full confidence. Because this too shall pass. The trials that grieve you, that means they don't destroy you. Because they're a, they're a small gray cloud in a clear blue sky. They're a grain of sand on a beach towel on a perfect day. And their suffering, because of the resurrection of Jesus, it's not random or haphazard either. Verse 6 says that if necessary, you are given these sufferings. That is that, that suffering itself has been taken up into the sovereign purposes of God. That's what Good Friday is all about. And that God can use those sufferings, those trials in your life, and he will use them to strengthen your faith for good so that your faith is formed. Because... Your best days are not your end, and your worst days are not your end. Your end is the revelation of Jesus Christ and worshiping and glorifying him forever. And anything that promotes that end is for your good. Which brings me to my last point. 
when you get this, that your end is the revelation of Jesus Christ, then you start to live for him, and that gives you a new passion. So the resurrection, it gives us a new life. The resurrection, it gives us a new future. And finally, the resurrection gives us a new passion. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. For whatever reason, I don't think that there are any more tender words in the whole Bible. Maybe it's because I don't think of myself as someone who loves him very much. And then I read 1 Peter 1. And I read these words, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And I think I do. I do love him. And I do want to see him. I want to see the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to see the one who overcame death and hell for me. I want to see him. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch, and in the second century, he was in prison and about to go to his death. And he wrote this, Neither the pleasures of the earth nor the kingdoms of this age are of any use to me. Is it better for me to die for Jesus Christ than to rule over the ends of the earth? I yearn for him who died in our place. I long for him who rose again for our sake. The pains of birth are upon me. When I read 1 Peter 1.8, I resonate with that. I sat there writing the sermon and just stopped, kind of dead in my tracks, and I started like weeping in the coffee shop. I'm so weird. But this confirmation that though you don't see him, you love him. And don't you want to see him? Verse 7 says that because of the resurrection of Jesus, you will. That he will be revealed. That there is a revelation of Jesus to come. And what will it be like? Look at verse 7. It says that the outcome of your faith on that day will be praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What will it be like? If it weren't there in Scripture, it would feel blasphemous to say it. Do you realize what Peter's saying? He's saying that at the outcome of your faith, at the end of the day, when you have gone through all these trials, at the revelation of Jesus, what will happen is that he will see you and praise you and bestow honor on you. And crown you with glory and honor. That's what we wait for. To see the one who made us. To see the one who redeemed us. The one who bore in his body our sins upon the tree. The one who rose on the third day for our sake to give us new life. We will see him and when we see him, 
He will see us. And yes, we will praise him, but this text says that he will praise us and bestow on us glory and honor. And what is that? I don't know what to call it besides grace, which is what Peter calls it in verse 3. According to his great mercy, that is grace, he has caused us to be born again to this living hope. Grace. It's God's praise to the praiseless. It's God's honor bestowed on the dishonorable. It's God's victory to the defeated. It's God's triumph for failures. It's the resurrection for wretches. And it's for you and me who put our trust in him. And doesn't that make you want to live for him now? You know, one of the things I... Ages ago, I wrote a book, and the book took me like 10 years. And there were a lot of people that helped along the way. The thing that I enjoyed writing most in that book was the acknowledgments. I was so happy to get to the end. To work so hard and to say, these are the people that I was doing it for. And it was actually the writing of the acknowledgments that, that motivated me to finish. So that, that I could talk about the help and support and praise and honor that these people had poured on me throughout the process and encouraged me to get to the end. And don't you want to get to that day when he will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are a victor. You are overcome. And here's the crown of life. Doesn't that make you want to live for him now? Verse 8 says that even though we don't see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's saying that 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 experience, that life, that relationship that we will have one day, someday, that we can actually start experiencing it now, this day. That the glory of the world to come and that relationship that we can actually, and the joy, the inexpressible joy, that we can actually experience that now by His Spirit. The resurrection that gives you a new passion to live for Him. And so here's my question for you. Do you want new life? Do you want a new future? A future and a hope that is grounded and guaranteed. Do you want a joy that is inexplicable and which cannot be destroyed by circumstance or suffering? You can have it. How? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe with all your being. Trust that God raised him from the dead on your behalf. And you will be saved. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.